Welcome to Startup Confidential, what industry insiders will never tell you that you need to know if you're building a consumer brand. With your host, best-selling author of Ramping Your Brand, Dr. James Richardson. Let's do this. Welcome to episode 99. Oh gosh, we're close to 100. Episode 99, Stakeholder Classes, The Buyer. I'm reissuing a popular episode from the past because most of you are headed into annual buyer meetings over the next few months. Oh, Jai, I hope you don't have to have a meeting with Mr. Mountain Dew guy. Anyways, <laughs> for consumer brands sold in retail, the vast majority, folks, yep, the vast majority of all consumer packaged sales for your average brand is going to happen in traditional retail. And thus, the buyer, quote-unquote, is perhaps the ultimate gatekeeper class you deal with, whether you like it or not, and most of you don't like it, at least in the beginning. Why? Well, it's because they gatekeep access to the playing field, more or less. And in consumer packaged goods, you might be able to get in, I don't know, to some kind of initial scale online. Getting really expensive to do that now, folks, in 2023. But you might be able to. You might be able to get to a million in recurring revenue. It's happened before. It seems to be happening more and more recently. However, sooner or later, you're going to need to sell to where the vast majority of the consumer brand buying traffic in your category is, even for an innovative premium brand. And that is in brick and mortar retail, folks. You know, the late 2010s D2C, mostly funded by Carreze Venture Capital, which has vanished. Hmm. Uh, you know, that's over. That little tsunami. So we can see the value of brick-and-mortar retail with a little more clarity than a couple years ago. And this means you're going to have to sell into a merchandising organization, which functions very differently uh, than Jeff's Autobots behind the curtain at Seller Central. That merchandising organization carefully manages your access to physical shelf space. I'm not going to say it actually carefully manages its own physical shelf space because I actually know that is not true. But they try to manage their physical shelf space to maximize profit for the chain overall. So the job of your buyer at his little desk is to manage penny profit growth for the whole category. So his brain is category anchored. This generally means catering to large legacy brands that are driving most of that flow of profit, most of the water in the river, uh, just because they sell massive volumes even if they do it at lower price points than you. All right. And this is despite the fact, you know, that their penny markup per unit may actually be lower in absolute pennies than yours and lower than your average premium brand, right? So they're, they're making less per box for retailer Joe, but the volume's so garnormous that it don't matter. So many founders early on, they get sucked into what I call a distributor first mentality. All hail the distributor who's willing to take my shit. And that is because it's often the only way in to many of the retailers that you have available to you in your local area. And primarily the independents, who you could very easily sell in, like today at 9 a.m., who are completely dependent on distributors to get their product. They don't run their own warehouse system. <laughs> They're too small. So in order to get into independence, to get that initial test in the market, get that initial order volume to test your supply chain. You've got to have inventory inside that distributor's local warehouse first. 
Because <laughs> otherwise, you can't go and sell an order. Well, I guess you could, but that's what we call uh, smirk and mirth. <laughs> Certainly, you'd want to have some kind of proof that you are being onboarded before you go to your local independent specialty store and sell them 22 cases of Anyways, the way that distributors treat small brands is, well, uh, shall we say, beyond notorious in its total indifference to your fate, if not outright exploitation of your smallness. But buyers, buyers are very, very different stakeholders than distributors and not for the obvious reasons that you're thinking. The most important reason they're different is that you can actually make them material amounts of cash very quickly if you're growing exponentially because their chunk of the suggested retail price in pennies is much larger than that of the distributors. It's also much larger than yours. <laughs> Sorry, how convenient for them. This is mostly true for smaller chains who are gonna notice, you know, the small brand spiking and for independents that you often first sell into. Okay, for example, if you have grown your company to a million dollars in company sales through distributors, then you've probably added hmm, anywhere from three quarters to $1 million of gross unit profits to the retailer's balance sheet and to the buyer's desk, all right? I realize it's not happening immediately, but it will happen. Suddenly you'll wake up and realize you just added that much financial value to a buyer and his desk. Now this is probably three times more per unit in money then you'll be grossing off of the same inventory. I'm sorry. Ah, given the price you're selling it into the distributor, as you painfully know. But since the distributor's markup is at a lower unit price than the retailer's markup, I, it will take you longer to produce the equivalent profit for the distributor. In other words, folks, the retailer is going to make money faster and in larger amounts earlier because of where they sit in the value chain, like at the top of it faster than your distributor will. Look, even if you're growing along the skate ramp exponentially, this is a difference of years between when the distributor is seeing the seven figures in revenue from you and when the retailer is. That's what I'm trying to point out. So if the retail is gonna see that multiple years in advance, this is the primary reason startups don't get taken very seriously by distributors, even though ironically, it's the person you're selling into. And it's why they focus on you for years as just a source of fee income. It's also why they charge all sorts of so-called mandatory fees and lots of punitive stuff and play fast and loose with manufacturer chargebacks. That's because you're there to kind of fill empty slots on trucks, but generally speaking, as an individual business, you're a pain in their ass, unless they can get fee income, which for them is yum yum in the tum tum right? Because it's all profit. <sighs> this is also why the distributor tries to get you to pay. I love, I love this. You, the completely broke startup, they get you to pay to promote your own brand inside their system because A, they need the fee income, like I explained, and because they're not making any money off of you. And B, they certainly have no reason to bust their butt to promote you because you're just one of those folks whose the data shows in their own system is probably going to be out of their system in 18 months anyways. Right, so the only reason to let you in is the fees. Until those major chain buyers come calling and suddenly, suddenly, whoop-de-woo, they sure do change their tune fast to them distributor. So. <clears throat> hey listeners. 
Exponential growth involves more than a killer product, great fundraising, and a great team. You need superb analytics to ride the ramp. Dr. Richardson's latest online course is now available, Effective Consumer Marketing for Early Stage Founders. You can find course pricing and details at premiumgrowthsolutions.com courses. And now back to the episode. So remember, it's the buyer who's most likely to make material money quickly earliest off of your fast growth, especially if you can concentrate it in a specific metro area where the numbers now become visible because they're concentrated. And so you need to put the buyer at the top of your list of folks to flatter and serve, even though they're not literally the person that you're selling into and shipping your product to in many cases. You need to get them on your side and see them as partners and have demonstrated that you respect what's going on at their desk because they actually are the key to getting the distributor to play ball. Smart buyers are always looking for new sources of category growth to get their whole pie to grow. Or they're looking to boost the profits produced off their desk, which is something that you can disproportionately contribute to as a fast-growing premium business with a higher unit price. And thirdly, they're also looking to bring in traffic for cool hip brands like yours that would otherwise go to local competition, right? So that's called improving their category mix to attract better shoppers. So you need to understand how to position your innovation, not only as a cool premium priced growing thing, but also as a strategically valuable addition to that buyer's merchandising set in the context of their never-ending battle to grow their banners, local share of wallet is what they call it in retail strategy. But not all buyers are you know, really savvy about the whole local share of wallet thing. It all depends what's going on in the building. And you should know what's going on in that building at Sprouts, at Kroger, or even in your local specialty network. The process of selling into buyers might involve working with, say, one supermarket chain exclusively in key markets until enough jealousy has been induced locally through data streams because you've concentrated your sales cleverly. And well, by the way, that's how marketing reacts more efficiently. That the buyer of the jealous chain you're not in actually starts coming to you. Ooh, this has happened many times. And it is exactly where you want that buyer coming to you because now they've played their cards and now you can come in hot 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 like you always wanted to at the first meeting just don't be an ass <laughs> it may take a while but you can trigger that effect the thing that i've noticed is that skate ramp brands who i fetishize obviously due to my book um you know they're doubling in size every year off of a small base the issue is that they don't generate the kind of feeding frenzy that a unicorn brand does at retail, right? A brand that's going into 10,000 doors in one year. You do have to wait. You have to wait for your Kroger sales in LA, for example, to cause Albertson Safeway to react. And it may take a while. Buyers are a strange crowd. They're fickle. And they're always attuned to looking for incremental spikes in their category pie. I mean, their whole life is incrementalism, you know, so they're not exactly waking up, you know, thinking that they're going to find some exponential growth brand in their data. It's just not how they think. It doesn't mean you can't point it out to them, right? 
what item, this is how they think, what item can I add that'll get a little lift in my pie, make it a little bigger, more profitable, yada, 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 how do I shine at my desk? They're not actually trained to identify skate ramp brands growing exponentially off of a small base, especially when you're below, you know, a couple million dollars because they're just not even paying a lot of attention to a brand below 10 million in a national system. They do, however, easily glom onto unicorns because those velocities are cuckoo crazy. And they're so crazy, they cause actual shelf out-of-stock problems um, and flow problems inside their own network. Even though they're small businesses, the velocity is so insane that it causes their own system to hiccup. And they get noticed, you know, but a skate ramp brand isn't necessarily doing that, even as it's doubling every year. Even as velocities are growing 10 to 20% a month, I would love to stand here and tell you that buyers are, you know, I've all read my book, and so they're all dutifully looking for any kind of brand that's growing exponentially off a small base, and they're thinking a couple years down the road on what that brand could be doing for them, how awesome it's going to be, and then catering to them. I've never heard of a single one that acts this way, in part because like brand managers at big companies, they're rotating off their desks way too frequently to make a medium to long-term bet with their mix. I'm not going to say that they're as horribly short-term-ist as, uh, <clears throat> you know, the public firm crowd who can only think quarter to quarter, but they're definitely focused on this year and, you know, <laughs> the first half of next year. They're not sitting there thinking, how can I merchandise this above-average growth premium brand selling not too much um, with a view to five years, where could it be? No, they don't think like that. That's your job. To think like that. But you're going to have to find other ways to convince them in the near term that this is worth their time. And that can get down to literally getting inside their head about how they can look better in front of their boss, given any kind of tangential strategic interest that the retailer has with the premium sector. And I have to admit, a lot of this is just PR, right? Walmart wants all sorts of small brands coming in and they want all sorts of diverse quote-unquote suppliers coming in because they don't want to get sued <laughs> and they also desperately need to appear relevant to younger folks who are not Anglo-Saxons. Shocker. <laughs> well, I wish you best in your buyer meetings this summer and early fall. Crush it. But go in there and understand that they are more easy to activate than the distributor. And so study your buyer. Go into that meeting with knowledge about them as a person. Play to that. Get them irrationally on your side. Because then the distributor will roll over with its puppy dog legs in the air most of the time. That's all I've got. And remember, be safe out there. Thanks for listening. Remember, Dr. Richardson has loads of resources for founders at premiumgrowthsolutions.com. And when you're on his site, don't forget to take his founder's quiz and see if you're ready to ride the skate ramp of exponential growth.